Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Justin Untersteiner, who is an Assistant Commissioner, Individuals with the Australian Taxation Office. Justin has been with the ATO since 2006 and is responsible for the delivery of taxation compliance strategies and client activities within the individual's market. With a client base of over 9 million, Justin works with stakeholders to embrace new ways to deliver services and assurance strategies to the community. He is accountable for delivering a positive client experience by developing a whole-of-client approach to audit activity and by using data to transform the ATO's compliance approaches. Justin, welcome to TaxIAC. Thank you, Rowan. Thank you for having me. Look, it's great to have you here. And um, I know it's an early start for us this morning here, but I gather you've been up a few hours before us. Absolutely. We've got a we've got a newborn in our house at the moment, as well as a little rat bag three-year-old. So I had a very early start this morning and a bit of lack of sleep, but I'm all good and excited and ready to go. So do you get the little ones to sleep by reading them tax law? Oh, <laughs> no, but that's too exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to agree with you on that. Look, um, just before we get underway, I've, I've got an updated list of the countries that TaxYak is now infiltrating and um, really proud to see this uh, very lengthy list and um, some new additions to uh, the countries that are listening to us. Uh, we've got Portugal, we've got Brazil, we've got Serbia, we've got Nauru, uh, and Ivory Coast, of course, is still featured there, which um, does amuse me. I'm intrigued to see who's listening to us over in the, the Ivory Coast in Africa. So uh, again, welcome to our listeners. So Justin, we're going to have a chat today about the ATO's approach to work-related expenses and rental properties. It's a huge area of focus for the ATO. And we know mid last year, there was a lot of publicity and education directed towards getting claims right for work-related expenses. But this year, the ATO is adding rental properties into that as well. That's correct. Um, last year, uh, mid-year around July, we released the individual's uh, not-in-business tax gap estimate for the very first time. And, you know, there was quite a bit of media and, and interest in that. Um, you know, you may recall that um, what it told us was we found uh, 70, uh, 72% of income tax returns lodged for this market had some form of error in it. Now, in saying that, generally what we saw are small errors, um, but when you think that this market, individual taxpayers, not business, represents about 10 million Australians, that adds up very quickly. And so as a result, we released an estimated tax, tax cap for the 14-15 financial year of 8.7 billion dollars or um, 6.4% of revenue in that market. So it's, it's, a, it's a big issue for us. And just to put that in context, uh, for some time there'd been talk about the multinationals tax gap and that was finally quantified at around the two and a half to three billion dollar mark. So this is nearly three times that. Absolutely. Um, and again, it comes down to, I think, the size of the market, you know, the, the number of Australians. And so they're getting it wrong just a little bit. Um, at times, uh, I think people um, think it doesn't matter too much. But when you add it up across the community, I mean, that's a lot of schools or hospitals or roads. Um, and so it is a big issue. And I think it's an important issue that we are very keen to address. But isn't there still a perception that, oh, look, it's only a little bit, it doesn't matter, or everyone else is doing it, or they're never going to find this? Yeah. And look, um, we, we do work to um, survey the community to try and understand perceptions. And yes, you know, that that is the feedback that we get sometimes. It's okay to cheat a little bit. 
um, it doesn't make a difference. And what, part of what we're trying to do is help educate the community, educate the profession, so we understand what the real impact of those little mistakes or those little errors are. And also to use things like technology and data to help people get it right up front. I think that's really, really important. And, you know, we've, um, we have a lot of um, data at our fingertips uh, and we're, um, we're trialling some new um, technology. And so I think we're going to be able to make some really positive changes over the next few years. Look, it's also worth uh, passing on to our listeners that I'm personally involved in one of the ATA's consultations called shareable content. And that's a fancy expression for all the fact sheets and those guides that come out for individuals and their tax agents to be able to get things right. And we've got a group of practitioners working with the ATO. So it enables us to sit down and review these documents before they go out. So they're as practical as they can be. uh, And of course, technically accurate. Yeah, look, I, I highly encourage people to jump onto our website and, and have a look. You can type in for tax time toolkits is kind of the heading. And there is an expanding library of information that is tailored to industries or, or tailored to deduction types. There's some really, really good information out there. Practical tips, you know, moving away from jargon, um, you know, really talking about some of the traps that might be out there. So I really encourage people to have a look at those. We're getting wonderful feedback. I think still a lot of agents aren't aware that those documents exist. So again, everyone, if you want to jump onto your local browser and type in ATO Tax Time Toolkit, and you'll find links to those PDF documents. They are bright, they're colourful, you can give them to clients, and and often the clients don't believe the agent, but they'll believe something that comes from the ATO. So it does help communicate that message. Uh, Can we have a quick chat also about some of the figures involved regarding the... I guess the the focus on particular agents that are doing the wrong thing because some are more aggressive than others in their approach to claiming things. So where's the ATO at with the, the, the sorts of agents involved? Yeah, so look, we um, we undertook some research through the ANU um, several years ago to start to do some further analysis about the kind of behaviours and the kind of um, practices that we see with tax agents. And through that work, um, we've now undertaken a lot of validation with data what it is telling us is um, that there are some agents, a very you know small number really, percentage of agents that are really doing the wrong thing. And so, you know, I'm talking there are around 500 agents that are really deliberately um, pushing boundaries and playing the system. And knowingly. And knowingly, right. Um, and then we have under that about 8,000 agents that we think are generally trying to do the right thing, but sometimes maybe just getting it a little bit wrong. You know, uh, it could be pressure from clients, for a refund, it could be maybe not quite up to scratch on the law. It could be, but it's generally minor things without um, intent. We've now established a program, which we've been running for a couple of years um, to try and work on these things. So in terms of the eight or 9,000, getting a little bit wrong, we're really trying to help educate, right? That's that's what we want to do. We want to help people to get it right. Um, so we're going out to those practices. We're talking to them about their, the risk in their practices. We're, we're looking through their risk management processes, checklists, you know, those kind of things, and helping them to get it right. We're getting a really good response from those agents. They're finding it quite helpful and helping keep them on track. But when it comes to the 500, um, I'm often asked uh, when I go out to practices, like, what are you doing about that really dodgy practice up the road? You the know? cowboy. The cowboy, because, you know, it, it, it creates a... Um, unlevel playing field when people can gain extra clients because of their dodgy practices. And, and what, I hear that a lot in our training sessions where they'll say, I lost a client because I wouldn't let them claim something that they knew wasn't allowed to be claimed. Absolutely. And they um, often will go to these 500. Our early analysis told us that the, of the 500 higher risk agents um, that mostly represent individual, individual taxpayers, they represented around 1 million taxpayers across the community, which is a really large figure and, and re- very worrying. 
We uh, received funding from the government to really tackle this issue. We've ramped up our program. Um, and just to give an idea of what we do, I just want to be really transparent so mm. people have confidence that we are dealing with these folk. Um, you know, we have written, we write out to all of them to let them know that we have concerns. We write out to their clients to let them know there are issues. Uh, uh, if we're not seeing a response, we will then contact them every two weeks to talk to them about what we're seeing. If we still don't get a response, we'll stop every one of their tax returns for review. We'll seek schedules and extra information on every single return. If we need to, we'll audit their own personal affairs, their practice affairs. Um, uh, and then if we need to, we'll refer it to the Tax Practitioner Board for review. And I can tell you just this year, we've seen a number of agents that have been deregistered um, and some um, unable to re-register for five years because of this particular program. I think that's a really important point because I think in the past there's been an understanding that if someone claims something they shouldn't have, the taxpayer was denied the deduction, they copped a tax shortfall penalty and, of course, GIC, the general interest charge. Yeah. But now the Tax Practitioners Board is working much more closely with the ATO. So it's no longer just a case of the taxpayer copying an outcome. Now the agent themselves can face some sort of discipline reaction. Absolutely. Um, and, and, again, we've seen evidence of that recently uh, and, you know, just uh, I think a positive story there is we've been running our numbers just recently and already the client base for those 500 has dropped from about 1 million down to 600,000. So we are having an impact. And what we're seeing then is the 400,000 that have sort of moved on, they're moving to those legitimate agents that are doing the right thing. Reputable you know? agents. Absolutely. And we're, we're really pleased and I think that should give confidence to those that are doing the right thing, which is the majority of tax agents. Um, so, you know... Um, I think the program's been quite successful and, you know, we are looking at how we can continue to mature it um, and continue to refine our data and models. Terrific. All right, well, let's get into the detail of the first topic of conversation, work-related expenses first, and then we'll tackle rental properties. So, work-related expenses. Uh, with the gap last year, look, the median adjustment was just $210. As you said earlier, it's a small amount, but across the country, when it's extrapolated, it becomes quite significant. The average claim is dropping from last year. Yeah, so this is, look, I think this is a really good news story and um, one we're, we're really pleased with and we're really, um, it shows, I think, the collaboration between the industry and the tax office um, to work on this, this issue. And we've always said that, I mean, this isn't a witch hunt. We want to work collaboratively and positively with agents and with the industry to help um, make sure that this is, you know, we clean this up. We know that in our tax gap estimate, 51% of our gap, so over $4 billion, was purely related to errors that in work-related expense deduction claims, right? So that's a, it's clearly a really big issue. We've been doing a lot of work to help now educate what those kind of issues are, the kind of things that practitioners and taxpayers themselves can do to try and address them. We've implemented new technologies, you know, that kind of help through um, um, nudging and educating. Um, and already what we've seen is over the past two, uh, so this current financial year and the previous financial year, if you add them up, we've already seen a reduction in the average WRE claim for each um, individual taxpayer over 10 million people um, of around $130. Now to put that in perspective, because it doesn't sound like a huge number, the work-related expense average claim has been rising every single year since the early 90s, um, every single year. Um, and in some years, by as much as 60 to $120 per year, right? Um, we then, to see now for the first time in over 20 years, a reduction, right, is really quite significant. And what that means in terms of revenue for the community is already that represents over $600 million that is now back 
um, in the kitty for the community. So that is really significant. Justin, is this just a case of taxpayers being scared into not claiming? Yeah, look, that's a good question. And it's something that we um, are very mindful of is we certainly don't want to be in the position where we're scaring people out of making legitimate claims. But my answer is I don't think so. Um, what uh, what we see, if I just really quickly call out some of the kind of issues that we see around work-related expenses, and then I'll talk about now what we're seeing in the change and why I don't think we're scaring people. You know, what we saw through the random inquiry program is, you know, deductions being made that are private in nature or no nexus to... Give me some examples. So what have you seen in the, uh, the past number of years where yeah. someone has blatantly claimed something that was private in nature? Oh, look, we see things like, um, you know, and a common one would be clothing, you know, people claiming um, just a plain suit that they wear to work. But I have um, to wear it to work every day. That's right. Um, <laughs> um, but again, unless it's protective clothing um, or it's um, industry specific, um, it can't be claimed, but we see that quite often. You know, we're seeing claims for the use of a private vehicle um, to and from work uh, is a really common one. You know, we often see apportionment issues of people claiming 100% of their mobile phone um, when clearly it wasn't required for 100% of the job. You know, I saw one recently, I, was to, I went and met with an agent who had some, just a little bit of risk. And again, we're going through that education phase. And to help, we were looking at their working papers and sort of looking at what we would see is something you might want to ask questions. And we saw there was a bus driver and the bus driver had made a claim for steel cap boots and 100% of the mobile phone bill. And so we asked the agent about, um, so why do you think a bus driver is using the mobile phone 100% of the time? It just doesn't seem to add up when they're driving a bus and it's illegal to use a mobile phone. Or even the steel cap boots seemed odd. Now, there could be legitimate reasons, by the way. I'm not saying it mm. was not, I mean, we went auditing this person. But the agent hadn't asked the question, right? And it's a really good example for us about a little bit of due diligence is really important in those circumstances. To go, well, why would you need steel cap boots? that you're claiming. Um, uh, and then we also see at times, you know, the more um, outrageous claims, you know, we see, um, you know, hairdressers that might own um, a poodle that's claimed as a guard dog. <laughs> or we see, um, you know, those, again, they're a little bit rarer, but we see those kind of things as well. Look, I sometimes have heard the ATA pulling up someone claiming school fees, which just seems such an extraordinary yeah, thing to put through fees. a tax return. school fees, we see childcare um, fees. Um, and again, you know, those are private in nature. The other one too that I really want to call out, because this is one that um, concerns us, is the use of what, of what we call a standard deduction, right? The standard deduction, what I'm referring to, are the exceptions that exist under the substantiation provisions. Um, now, under a self-assessment system, the exceptions were introduced to make it easier for people and more streamlined and reduce red tape for people with legitimate claims right but what we've seen over time is it become a standard freebie um, deduction and Justin you're referring to the 150 for clothing and laundry the $300 work-related expenses and the 5,000 kilometers for the, the set ratio precisely and you know a really good example is we saw six I think it was 6.2 million Australians are claiming uh, laundry or clothing when I heard that figure I still haven't been able to pick my drawer up off the ground. Yeah. I, I cannot accept that one in two people walking around, we've got roughly 13 million taxpayers in the country, are wearing a uniform or protective clothing to work. I just can't accept it. Well, and, and we don't either. Um, and the our random inquiry program and our audits, again, evidence that quite often there are areas. And again, that's a place where we see a significant number of claims at the $150 mark. And so even though there's an exception, we'll still ask questions about, but how does this... A, relate to your employment, you know, we will talk to employ in the employers. And so, again, uh, some issues we see. So if I think then about, well, what are we now seeing as a change that's reducing 
the the WRE claims, we're seeing a reduction in the standard deductions. We track those. We're starting to see a reduction and we're seeing them reduce in areas where we had seen errors previously. We're seeing, again, um, uh, reductions in um, particular claims that have traditionally been a little bit problematic on the return. So we're very confident in actual fact that the reduction is a very legitimate one for the right reasons. But the message I always leave for people, if you've got a taxpayer who comes to your practice and they might have claims that are a little bit high, but they are legitimate, make sure you claim them, right? And document why you've claimed them. Absolutely. There is no issue with that. And we support that. Okay. Um, We're not trying to scare people off from making legitimate claims. We want people to claim the right amount, just no more, no less. Yes. So if we now look at how the ATO is using technology to uh, review the returns and encourage the right claiming of amounts, I've known the last few years of this concept called nudge technology. And for those that are not familiar with the concept, what it means is when you're you're sitting on your tax return, I'll just assume for the moment you haven't got an agent, you're sitting there with MyGov and and using MyTax, and you go to put in a a claim for your expenses uh, relating to your car, and a little message pops up in real time saying, you sure you want to claim that? And I heard of a taxpayer where they tried again, and the message came back saying, yeah, you still sure? And they tried again and again, and they tried 18 times before the claim was accepted. And the ATO tracks this. Absolutely. And clearly that's a red flag that if a taxpayer is making 18 attempts to claim something, then maybe they're trying to manipulate it to get it below the threshold, um, below which the the technology would accept that figure. But I think it could work the other way. You could have someone making an attempt to claim it and there is no message. So they try again thinking, oh, I can go higher. I can go higher. I can go higher. Oh, finally, that will be accepted. We... um we do track those that are making multiple changes to a return. I think it's wonderful. Uh, and so we can we can watch that. But look, again, I, I want to go back to the best position for all of us to be in is to help people to get it right in the first place. Yep. Um, and so we did introduce this nudge technology into MyTax and it uses real-time data and it compares a taxpayer to someone that is in a very similar circumstance to them. So in potentially the same employment category, similar income. So that code is really important. Oh, absolutely. Um, Defining the employment code is very important. Um, And now, you know, and then what happens is if I'm, you know, I'm Justin, um, I've made a claim uh, for um, education, for instance, it's quite high. I might get a nudge to say, compared to your peers, this looks high, are you sure? Now, if it's legitimate, I'm like, yep, that's fine, and I click it. But if maybe I'm pushing the boundaries, I might rethink that and change it. And what we've seen is some really positive changes in behavior through that. Now, unfortunately, um, that wasn't available for tax agents up until this point. We introduced it to MyTax first um, to test the technology. We prefer to test it in our own technology before we roll it out more broadly. But the good news now is we've been working with digital service providers and software providers in the industry to have it ready for next tax time for agents. So as the 19 software rolls out in the next couple of months? Uh, yeah, so um, there are some providers um, who will have it ready for 1 July, which is really exciting. There are some providers that will have it ready around September. Okay. And then there are a few that are still exploring the option, but my sense is they'll move pretty quickly because I think this is a really, uh, I think a lot of agents are calling for this kind of technology. Uh, the kind of um, benefits we see here for tax agents is if you're sitting with a client, particularly a client that might be a little bit pushy, um, and a flag pops up to say that this this claim is high risk, um, the agent has the ability then to say to the taxpayer, hey, the ATO is telling me... In real time. In real time, this is a worry. So we're going to have to ask some extra questions and we might need to see some extra receipts or evidence, right? It's there to support agents, really. That's, that's what this is about, to help people know when they're kind of swimming outside of the flags a little bit or where there's some risk in their practice. 
Um, so we think this is a really exciting initiative, one um, that you know a lot of agents have been asking for for a little while. Now, if you start combining this nudge technology through the tax agent software combined with the pre-fill, it yeah. gives them some pretty powerful tools. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it really um, puts the information that we hold in the fingertips of the tax agent. And that's what we're trying to do again. We, we're not interested in catching people out, right? I really am not. What we want to do is help people to get it right uh, in the first place. Can you talk about the use of artificial intelligence? It's um, one of these new buzzwords. I think a lot of people yeah. are still trying to get their head around what it even means. But how is the ATO going to be using that type of technology in this scenario? Yeah, the robots are taking over. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, we are making a, we are introducing a few changes. So I might, um, just before I specifically talk about artificial intelligence, I might talk about another little piece of technology that will be available 1 July and supports artificial intelligence. It's really important. So um, at the moment, um, uh, agents would know in their software that they, um, can, they hold information um, in their worksheets and more granular data about a particular claim. So to use an example, there might be a claim for um, deductions, uh, so for donations, sorry, um, of say $1,000, but that might consist of three different donations. Or label D5, other work-related expenses. Other work-related expenses, another really good example. And so an agent will list out what those things are within their software. Uh, what a lot of agents wouldn't know is we don't actually get access to that information. We only get the, the total value at the It label. doesn't form part of the lodgement itself. It doesn't. It doesn't come over to the ATO. As of 1 July, um, that will be mandatory that that information is sent to the tax office. We've been working with software providers. The technology will be in place. We will now have access to that data. The benefits of that um, are because we've got access to that data, um, we're less likely to have to call a tax agent to ask questions about, the, about that, and that's a good thing. But also, uh, in future years, that data will be stored in the systems, which means if a taxpayer is moving to um, a, a different tax agent or moving from my tax to a tax agent, the new tax agent will have access to that information from their previous returns too. And I think that's very helpful. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, where artificial intelligence then comes into play is, you know, using robotics within our systems to automatically scan that kind of information in a tax return to look for red flags. And if I use an example, if under the D5 label, childcare was listed, right, um, it's unlikely that that's going to be an allowable deduction. Um, it's likely that our robotics will pick that up as an automatic um, automatically. So it's really just an extension of the old exception report that was spat out by the system. Absolutely, and but it's real time. Um, it learns and it grows. Um, uh, and, and where we really want to get to there is be able to say to the tax agent right there, hey, we think there's a concern with this, or this is risky, so you're going to have to provide a little bit more information right now. And that's where we're looking to another piece of um, work that we're undertaking around providing better channels to provide documentation and receipts and substantiation at the time of lodgement, if appropriate, not all the time, obviously that'd be um, unreasonable, but when appropriate, uh, and to make that easier for taxpayers and tax agents. Justin, there's an area that has still been causing ongoing concerns, and I know recently the ATO has published some further guidance on this. It's the bundled telephone data plans. And if I think back to 20 years ago, you had a lovely itemised phone bill, you'd grab your highlighter, and you just run it through the work calls and claim that amount. Yeah. These days, just about everybody's on a fixed amount per month, yeah. which includes often unlimited data. Yeah. And I know the ATO has provided guidance that you can work it out on either a a time basis or a data basis. Yeah. And if you're going to keep actual records, great. If you're not, then you run a four-week diary. Yeah. In my travels, I rarely come across a four-week diary. Yeah. It's just uh, many are not aware of it. Yeah. And those that are aware of it uh, are basically not doing it in practice. 
And I just think there are still really big questions about a practical way of dealing with this because people are in some cases running home office expenses or they want to claim a proportion of their phone because it does relate to work. Trying to establish that proportion is very difficult. Yeah, so if I I'll just share with you some um, further insights from our random inquiry program and I'll link it back to this issue. Um, if you look at our random inquiry program, what it told us was that in um, 20, around 26% of errors, the primary issue was just record keeping, being able to prove to us um, that the money had been spent, right? Um, in a further 25% of cases, there was a dual issue, which was, again, record keeping, substantiation, but and nexus, right? And nexus would include uh, the extent of taxable purpose? That's correct. Mm. And so, but what that tells you at a macro level is in 51% of cases of the errors, the issue was either pro- like solely record keeping or partly record keeping. Now, that tells us that there is an issue in the system, right? And that tells us it might be time to review substantiation rules, the law, the technology, um, Look, I've got to say, Justin, I recall a couple of years ago there were there was talk about a review of the substantiation rules, and I'm not sure where that actually got to. Yeah, look, I um, I think uh, what I can tell you now is we are looking at this right now. Um, we're working with the profession. Um, we It's a priority for the organisation, um, and we want to address those kind of issues that you're raising. Like, are the current rules and guidance practical and pragmatic for real use? Um, uh, are the exceptions still fit for purpose? And then again, what is the technology that supports this to make it really easy? Well, think of the age we now live in. Everything's done on devices. Every yeah. I'm not saying the whole community. There's still some that sit outside the, the digital environment. But yeah. vast majority within the internet. They're on smartphones. Everything is pay pass. There's so little cash floating around that's being used for everyday expenses. Um, Again, I would support anything that looks at modernising those rules and customising them to, to fit in with what we're doing in this current age. Absolutely, and that, that's our focus too. Um, although, while I'm at it, I can't help but give a plug for the, um, the My Deductions app, uh, which you can find through the ATO app. Shamelessly plug it, Justin. Uh, I will, and you know, I can tell you, uh, I use it myself for my own tax return, and you know, it, it allows you to, at the time that you incur the expense, you can capture that, you can categorize it in the app, you can um, capture your receipt so you don't lose it, and then you can upload the information, the data, straight into your tax return, or you can provide it through a spreadsheet to your tax agent. So, And then it pre-fills into the tax return, doesn't it? That's correct. Yeah. So it's a it's a really useful tool. And, and in saying that, there are other also other tools out there that aren't ATO tools that are also very effective, often that come with, with software. So there are some tools out there, but um, we are very focused on this area and we will make some improvements over the coming years. Great to hear. All right, let's move on to rental properties. Yes. So I'm going to start with the figures. Rental properties have always been a concern for the ATO. And, and over the years, we've always had the the old but true problems about substantiation, nexus, private use, etc. But out of a, a recent review the ATO has done, and this only represents 16% of the tax gap for individuals, so not a significant proportion, but nine out of 10 returns lodged with rental property claims were incorrect. That's correct. It's so a staggering figure. It is a real worry. Um, and, and particularly if you consider here that there are 2.2 million taxpayers that report a rental income or a rental deductions. 
Um, that represents $44 billion worth of income reported for rental properties, but it also represents $47 billion worth of rental property deductions. That's negative so, gearing, isn't it? That's correct. So uh, without touching on, the, on that, um, that hot little issue, um, what I would say is um, it, it, we're talking about big numbers here. Mm. And then to, to know that our reviews are telling us that 9 out of 10 tax return, income tax returns that include a rental property deduction or income are incorrect is a, is a huge concern for us. What percentage of those are represented by agents? So our analysis would tell us that 85% of tax income tax returns that are lodged that include um, a deduction or income for a rental property are lodged through a tax agent. So the majority are being log- lodged through tax agents. Now, and which doesn't surprise us, by the way, because this is a more complex area of law. You start talking about depreciation, you're talking about capital gains tax. Um, you know, you are starting to, it's a more complex end of an income tax return. And so it makes sense that taxpayers are going to agents. It also can make sense why some people are making errors too, because it is complex, we get that. But nine out of 10 um, is, is far too high. Of the errors, what percentage related to income errors and what percentage related to deduction errors? Yeah, so 87% of the errors are deduction. So we see some small errors in income, um, but the majority of the issues that we're seeing relate to the deductions claimed on the income tax So to do the easy one first, I presume the income errors would be simply not declaring it? That's correct. So where we're seeing issues uh, in income generally, it's not declaring income. Um, and that um, you know really ties into... Um, you know, some of the, the trends that we're seeing in the industry around um, sharing technology, um, you know, where people who haven't traditionally rented out a room or a property are now dabbling in that space because it is quite easy to do, but they're not thinking about the tax consequence and therefore not declaring the income. When it comes to things like, if, you know, if somebody, for instance, is putting their a room or property on Airbnb or, or any of the platforms, you know, what people need to remember is we have access to enormous data sets um, I think what people forget, Airbnb being on a digital space, you can't rent through Airbnb without it being through their platform, through their app. So you've got access to data. Of course, you just need to contact Airbnb and say, right, please yeah. provide us with a list. And we, we continually, I mean, our data had data, like, you know, it was only um, 12 months ago that we collected 600 million pieces of data about individual taxpayers, and that's growing rapidly every day. Um, and so we do, we have really sophisticated um, data scientists and models um, and we're running data matching programs, you know. Um, and so, yeah, we, we do identify these issues. And so, again, we're encouraging people to report that income. Let's move into the errors being made with deductions. And the ATO has recently put out a, a top 10 tips or the top 10 list of deductions that are, yeah. are being claimed incorrectly. Um, perhaps it's worth us running through some of those. Yeah, so I'll just talk through what we see specifically um, through our work, through our audits, and through our random inquiry program and, and general reviews. That one of the most common error, uh, common issues that we see um, comes back to overclaiming interest deductions on a rental property. And the issue, there, there are really two primary issues we see. One is where a taxpayer has purchased a rental property. Um, uh, the, the, the loan that they have obtained through a financial institution is 100% allocated to the rental property. But then over time, they refinance to get a better deal or whatever it might be. But they, through that, use some of that funding for private purposes. So it might be refinancing, getting a little bit of extra out, and that's used for a renovation on their private residence, or it might be for a car or a boat or a holiday. Um, and then continuing to claim the full interest, the interest for the full loan. Because um, the thinking is, I took the loan out for the property, so correct. it's still 100% deductible. Absolutely. And what's important there is that you're apportioning and separating the private expense versus the um, the rental property expense. 
Uh, and what we do, uh, we have um, good relationships with financial institutions and using our powers, we do gain access to um, that information and we can look and reconstruct loan documents that go back 30 or 40 years. So we do look at that um, to pull that back together. The other, which is very similar, is just drawing down from existing loans, but then using those drawdowns again for private purposes. Justin, I think there is a, a lack of understanding amongst taxpayers and sometimes their agents, the difference between a redraw and an offset. Yeah. So if you've got a mortgage or a loan that's been taken out to buy a property and you pay down the balance of the mortgage and then you redraw it and increase the balance again, that becomes technically a fresh loan for this purpose, which means you then need to look at the, the purpose of those funds. And if the redraw is used for a private purpose, the interest on that part of the redraw is not deductible. That's correct. Whereas with an offset, if you're just putting money into a separate bank account that is not interest bearing because the bank's happy to let you apply those funds against the mortgage, the loan itself for the property remains intact. That's correct. All you're doing is minimising your interest along the way. So if you then want to access the offset funds, it doesn't change the character of the interest on the original mortgage. That's correct. And I think um, there's far more flexibility, of course, with an offset, but I don't think people understand the difference between the two and they regard them as pretty much the same. So therefore, you just claim all the interest. Yeah, it is It is an area that people have got to be really careful, um, be careful and, and seek the right advice about how you might structure your finances in those circumstances. Uh, and again, I think uh, one of the tips that we give is, you know, making sure we've got good record keeping, you know, keep records of changes to loans. Um, you know, keep that file. Um, so we, if we do come and ask some questions, it's available um, and, and making sure that people get it right in the first place. And terminology, making sure that people understand when I redraw money, it is from a redraw account or it's from an offset account. Absolutely. What have they're I actually done with it? They're very two different concepts. Very so. much so. All right. What other areas are you seeing on the deductions? Um, so look, another area um, that concerns us is that the incorrect cl- classifying as capital works as repairs. Um, and so what I'm going to, I'll give a couple of case studies here of like common kind of mistakes that we see. And these are real case studies, by the way. Um, one is where we, we found a taxpayer who renovated a bathroom in the rental property, but then they claimed the entire cost of that renovation in the one year in the tax return. Rough dollars. Yeah. Um, well, as you can imagine, I don't have the figures, but quite often when we see these, are they're, they're large. You know, tens of thousands. Absolutely, tens of thousands. And they, they do pop up very quickly on our, on our um, radar, as you can imagine, because of the quantum. Justin, I sometimes hear the conversation between uh, the taxpayer and the agent, which is relayed to me through our sessions. And the conversation will be of, I want to claim this amount as a repair. And the agent looks at it and says, no, no, that's actually capital and H&E can't claim that. And the taxpayer responds, but I spent so much. Yeah. And they seem to think the more they spend, the more legitimate a repair it is, whereas it's more likely the more they spend, it's actually capital in nature. Absolutely. And so it's a, it's a really common error. Um, we, we see that people really, um, again, it's a level where we see lots of errors um, um, and it's an area that people have got to be really careful of. Uh, another example here is where, um, you know, someone has claimed the entire cost of an asset that they replace in a property, uh, you know, like so a fridge, an oven or an a oven or hot a water service, or and it's the same thing. Rather than depreciating the asset, and making the deductions over a period of years, they are doing, um, or over the life of the asset, sorry, they are making a full deduction for that asset in the one year. Again, um, an area that we see quite commonly. Um, and then the other one too, um, the other one too, Robin, is where we see um, taxpayers making initial repairs to a property that they purchased before it's rented out, um, and again. Um, or soon after, but it was still also, an initial repair. That's correct. Yeah. And then, um, again, um, trying to claim that um, um, in, the, in the first year um, as a repair. And I had a conversation with a taxpayer recently, and it wasn't an agent, it was actually a taxpayer, who rang me to ask about uh, an audit that he was going through where he'd renovated a property over a couple of years, 
and then made a nice capital gain once it was sold. And he said to me, oh, look, I had an agent involved, but the ATO is denying my labour as being part of the cost. And he asked me, you know, can they do that? And I said, you're not going to like my answer, but absolutely they're correct. Because I said, you haven't paid someone else to do it. That would have been a legitimate cost involved in that property. But I said, you've incurred the cost of the materials, but the tax law doesn't recognise your own labour. He said, well, the house wouldn't have been built if I hadn't put my time into it. I said, that is true, but the tax law doesn't recognise it. absolutely correct. And look, you know, the thing that I really encourage people to do in these situations, particularly when you're looking at a situation that's not vanilla, you know, it might be a little bit different. You know, it might be that kind of issue where someone is you know, input their own labor or it could be, you know, any kind of complexities. We've got very good information on our website. And, you know, I, I, I can tell you, even before this podcast, I just went and had a, another quick browse through some of it. There's some really, really good information. It's in plain English. And even that issue that you've just spoken about there is plainly on the website. And so it is available and we do encourage people to have a look. Um, the other issue too that I just wanted to flag that we see and we're really focused on, I really want to call this one out, but, um, it relates to holiday homes. Um, what we're seeing is people who are purchasing holiday homes with the intent of it being a private holiday home, but then making a decision to rent the property out at certain times of the year um, and making some some areas. So one of those areas is where they're making deductions for the expenses they incurred for the full year, right? When they are only renting that property out and only trying to rent that property out for a small portion of the year. Um, you know, it's very important that, that those kind of expenses are apportioned appropriately. Um, we're also seeing issues around um, non-arm's length arrangements, again, where a property might be rented out to a mate or family or friends through the holiday period, but again, deductions are being made for the full expenses incurred on that property. So if you had a situation where somebody was leasing the property to a mate for half the market rental, what would your position be on the deduction? Look, our general position uh, in that circumstance, and again, we've got um, a ruling on this, would be that you would only um, make a deduction. Uh, if you've got um, evidence to prove that deduction um, up until the, uh, the amount of income that you've earned. And that um, becomes tricky because some expenses would be specific to the stay, e.g. it could be a cleaning cost, for example, yeah. or it could be an annual amount like insurance or council rates. Yeah. And so again, um, you know, that's where um, it's important to look at apportionment and again, to um, really understand what kind of arrangement you've got in place, whether it's at commercial rates or, uh, or non-arm's length. The, the final one, uh, and one that we're really focusing on that I want to mention is whether the property is even genuinely available for rent in the first place. Or what we see, actually, I, I'll share a story. I thought about this one. John Shepherd, one of my colleagues, assistant commissioner in the ATO running the Single Touch Payroll Program, was on this show just recently. And John called me. He was taking his family on holiday down the coast. And he called up someone who had a property that is um, advertised all year round. He said, look, I'm really keen to rent the property for, I think it was about two weeks. And they said to him that the minimum stay in this property was eight or nine weeks. Uh, and there was all these unreasonable terms. Um, and it was very obvious what was going on here, which was they were setting um, unrealistic conditions um, and non-commercial rates, oh, sorry, above um, commercial rates um, to, to avoid renting the property out. How unfortunate they happened to have that conversation with the tax officer. Absolutely. So we got the details <laughs> oh, of that dear. property. Um, and so... Just to, and so where we see those kinds of issues, we do do a lot of scrutiny. We look at what the market rates are. We will go and talk to the real estate state agents to understand what kind of conversations are taking place, whether so, they're taking advice. So putting a little post-it note in the corner of the local milk bar and saying that's being advertised to the world would not be sufficient. No. And in actual fact, um, where people um, sometimes surprised, even if it's advertised um, through a real estate agent, it may not still be genuinely available for rent if we think... 
um, that there are, again, unreasonable conditions or whether advice isn't being taken from agents. You know, we've seen um, times when agents will say, you will not be able to rent this property um, in these particular circumstances. That advice is avoided. The property is not rented. We will certainly look at that. So if it says available for rent, but no dogs, no kids. <laughs> um, if you start carving out all these Absolutely. people that are potential tenants, then it's Absolutely. narrowing it down to something that's not realistic. Absolutely. Okay. Um, something that I wanted to discuss with you, back to the sharing economy, Airbnb, etc. There's clearly an issue with people not fully understanding that the income is accessible in all cases. So that's one issue. Another perspective is the CGT treatment. And I'm really concerned out there that people are unaware that if they rent out a room or the whole house, there are generally going to be CGT implications for this. Yeah, look, uh, probably the example that I would use where I think it can be a little bit of a trap if people um, are unaware. And and again, I want to flag... This is this is an emerging kind of industry in a way. I mean, people have been renting rooms for many years, but you know the new um, online platforms are reasonably new, and so a lot of people who are renting rooms just for a little bit of extra cash, you know, really don't um, draw the link back to capital gains tax. And so we're really encouraging agents to uh, to be asking those questions. But a really good example would be if I've got a, a property; it's my main, it's deemed as my main residence, um, but I rent a room out um, through a, a platform. That room, as soon as I rent it out at commercial rates, ceases um, to be deemed as a main resident. Now, the house still will be. It's got to be a portion. It might be 10%. The other thing, though, that where people get called out is um, the, the six-year rule can't be applied uh, in that circumstance where only part of the property is being leased out. So, look, there are, there, it is a tricky area of law, but again... I really encourage people to jump on the website because we are constantly updating our advice um, on these kind of issues because they are emerging, they're becoming more prominent. um, And so it's really important that people jump on and have a look. I just want to expand on that, Justin. So what you're specifically referring to, it's section 118.145. This is the six-year absence rule in the 97 Act, of course. And this is where it says if you cease to treat the dwelling as your main residence, then you can lease it for up to six years and you won't lose your main residence exemption or if it's not being used for an income-producing purpose, then indefinitely. That's correct, under under the right circumstances, yes. The key word is it ceases to be your main residence. And, of course, if you're only leasing out one room in your house and you're still living in the rest of it, it hasn't ceased to be a main residence. Correct. Further, if you rent it out for a couple of weeks over some sort of festival or event in your local township and you move back into it after that couple of weeks, you haven't vacated it and ceased to treat it as your main residence. Your belongings are still there. You're on the electoral roll. The bills and utilities are still addressed in your name at that address. So you'd actually have to cease living there and move to another residence, whether you're renting or, or buying somewhere else, for that six-year absence rule to apply. And so I'm just concerned there are a lot of taxpayers and agents who think the six-year absence rule is available to them, which means potentially tax-free yeah. still when they sell it, when it's not. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, again, I think um, we, we're developing you know, lots of new material on these specific issues um, and trying to provide as much education as we can. We're also working with... Um, the digital service providers as well to try and provide information up front. So I really encourage people to jump on and just make sure they're giving that right advice. The ATO is now getting regular data every three months from the states, so titles office, state revenue office, etc., which enables you to know when a property's changed hands. So I'm still astounded when I come across an agent who says, oh, how will they know if the property's been sold? Well, yeah, you well, know. Absolutely. I mean, we get, again, uh, you know, a broken record on this, but we, we're getting access to more and more data every day. We get rental bond data, states and territories. We get property sales and purchase data. So, again, we can see where properties have been 
um, purchased and, and sold. So you know when a tenant pays a bond and it goes off to the, the relevant agency, um, which only, indicates the property's being rented. Absolutely. I mean, we also, um, I mentioned accommodation, sh- accommodation sharing platforms, we get information as well. But we also get then get information from the financial institutions as well, because you've got to remember... Mortgages are taken out. Absolutely. We get yeah. that information. And now we're even working with the Real Estate Institute to trial the use of property management reports. So gaining access to the data that sits in the property management systems for real estate agents um, using our powers. Uh, and so we can see exactly what expenses have been incurred. We can see what the rents are um, and we get access to information. So, you know, and look, I, I want to um, note that we want to use this data for good, not evil. And so, yes, absolutely, if people are doing the wrong thing, they may be audited. But more importantly, we're looking at how we can use this information up front. So we're doing things like we're identifying someone now has a property because we've got the information. We're writing to them early to say, it appears that you might have a rental property. Um, these are the kind of things you need to be thinking about now for record keeping, for, your, for, for taxation. And so, again, we're trying to get in early to help people get it right up front uh, rather than try and catch them out afterwards. On the issue of records... For the record, pun intended, I often get asked about how is the ATO allowed to get access to data? Doesn't privacy rules apply? Now, I think most people are aware the ATO can request data, but I still think there are people out there that say, can the ATO actually access that? Is there anything you're not allowed to access? Oh, look, there are, there absolutely, there are, um, you know, it's, we don't have unlimited powers to access data, of course, we, nor should we. Um, but we do, under the existing laws, have powers to collect certain data for certain purposes. Um, and so we, you know, where it's appropriate, you know, we gain access um, to that data um, to help us with these kinds of issues. So it's not an unlimited power, um, but certainly we do have access to a vast range of data. It is very broad. It is very broad, yes. Okay. Um, compliance activity in this space, number of audits that we could expect. Yeah, so we um, last year we undertook uh, 2,000 audits in this space, plus we undertook a, a number of like random reviews to help us understand and, and undertake analysis. Uh, based on the evidence that we were seeing, we did work with the government and we received further funding this year to address this issue. And already um, going to this year, we've gone from 2,000 to 5,000 audits, um, and that may increase again next year. So. Um, I will say this is a really um, big issue for us at the moment. Again, nine out of 10 returns uh, that have rental property income or deductions have an error, that that has to be addressed. Um, And so we will be upping our compliance activity, but at the same time, we're investing heavily in education material. Like our videos, I I, um, have mentioned to people, we've actually, it turns out we've got an ex home and away actor working at the tax office. And so we've used his wonderful skills to help us produce some wonderful um, property videos. They're really, really good. They're simple. They outline the kind of things that you can um, that you can and can't do. Um, and we've got the, the Tax Time Toolkits. We have so many products there available and they're changing every day. You know, I really encourage people to keep going on and having a look. So our primary goal here is to help people get it right up front. Um, but if um, people are continuing to push the boundaries, we certainly are upping our ante when it comes to compliance action. Look, certainly I don't think I'm revealing anything um, improper here, but we're currently reviewing another document on rental properties and the shareable content consultation, yeah. um, and that's going to be released shortly. So yeah. further guidance is going to be available on this. Absolutely. And, and then on top of that, we do our, um, you know, we're also working with the media. So, you know, we're now doing work with major um, commercial TV stations, newspapers to just get the message out there and help people to get it right. Terrific. So, Justin, just before we close off, um, we're approaching tax time. We've got about uh, six weeks left in the income year. 
it's all very exciting as we head towards June 30 again and we get to celebrate our New Year's Eve. So <laughs> what can you suggest for taxpayers this time around? Oh, look, what, what I would say, I, I've mentioned this a few times, but really if there's an area that you're a little bit unsure about, jump online and have a look. Um, but generally, particularly for practitioners uh, or advisors, the kind of um, advice I would give going for this tax time, you know, make sure you've got sensible risk management practice. Um, procedures in your practice you know what what we're not suggesting is that you have to have a receipt for every single claim we're not saying you have to do that level of scrutiny that might be unreasonable but you need sensible risk management practices so you're looking at the right things um, make sure you're using appropriate checklists you know some really good checklists out there available we often see where people are making errors they don't have basic things like checklists in place um, if you have a new client you know you might need to um, take a little bit of extra time to ascertain their their affairs and get to know uh, their personal circumstances um, where you've got existing taxpayers, though, don't forget to ask whether their circumstances have changed from year to year. That's an off, a common trap. You know, we roll on the same deductions from previous years where they've actually had some kind of change in their life, in their employment. That means those deductions are no longer um, appropriate. Justin, you've given me the prompt to roll out my very poor joke, but I do use it regularly. And those who are familiar with this will, um, will smile again. Why did the accountant cross the road? Because he did it last year. <laughs> and it is so true. Uh, you know, I um, I get uh, my wife gives me a hard time about my dad jokes, and I can almost throw that one into the, into the bag. <laughs> um, and then the final two thing, uh, the final thing that I'd mention, if it doesn't look quite right, it might not be. And so just ask those further questions. Just use a common sense approach. If I go back to the bus driver with the steel cap boots and the phone, you know, it's a really good example of just using a common sense approach to ask the right questions and just keep the right record on file. So it's a variation of the old ASIC rule. If it looks too good to be true for some sort of scheme, then it probably Absolutely. is. There was also, I should mention, uh, the Tax Practitioner Board um, releases guidance on what reasonable care looks like for a practitioner. And they actually just updated some of their guidance. I saw it on LinkedIn last night. And they've given some specific examples for work-related expenses. So again, jump on and have a look at the Tax Practitioner Board website as well because there's some really good information there. Thank you. And I'll jump online and have a look at that and share it as well. All right, Justin, any final comments? No, thanks for having me on the show. And we're very excited about uh, tax time coming up and we, we think it's going to be another big one. But a really, uh, I think a really good one with the new technology that we're going to see out there, the new information that's available. Um, so, you know, I'm really I'm looking forward to get some feedback from um, our key practitioners. And look, probably a final mention, of course, the ATO online services is uh, beginning to be rolled out and yes. maybe that's a conversation for another yak. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much thanks for joining so much. me today. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.